to invite you to go ahead and open your Bibles up to Psalm 27. We have been going through the book of John, but we've taken a little break here in the summer to do a little series we've called Summer in the Psalms. And so we're going to start back in the Gospel of John in August, um, but for now we're going, to, we're going to be in Psalm 27. Before we dive in, just one, one thing to kind of put on your radar that I'm particularly excited about is something that we are, we're going to be doing in August, three Wednesday nights in August that we're calling Reboot, Resetting Your Soul for the Fall. And this is going to correspond to the first three Wednesdays when school starts. And this will be an opportunity for the whole church, the, the entire Killarne family here to, to, to gather up. We will eat, so food is free. There will be programming for and child care for kids and for students. And then we will have some corporate gathering times in here where we will teach for adults. We'll have ice cream trucks on site and all that good stuff. You've got to pay for that, but we'll pay for the food. But um, this is going to be an awesome opportunity, we think, to, to get synergy and focus as a church family together as we head into the new ministry season. We're going, to be, we're going to be mailing out a packet of information about this here in the next week or two, which gives you a heads up on some of the things that we're going to be talking about. But we're, we're real excited about that and ask that you would begin to pray for it and, and mark it on your calendars. And hey, family, it, it, families, it's a full stop shop right there, okay, 530 to 8, those first three Wednesdays. But in the meantime, we've got business to do today in Psalm 27. And let me start our time by asking you a question. And it's a question you need not answer verbally, just within the privacy, okay, of your, of your own heart and mind. But what is your deepest, darkest fear? What is your, your greatest anxiety? What keeps you up at night, which is the way we've entitled this particular sermon, what makes you, what makes you anxious? Now, it could be thoughts of, of death or illness or finances or marriage or a prodigal child. Some of you might have even greater fears than these, terrorism and accidents and natural disasters. Um, some of you may, may be fearing that you get some sort of disease from the hotel that you've been staying at this summer. I don't know. Maybe you're one of those kind of folks. Now, some of you are like, Pastor Paul, I'm really not an anxious person, and I w- didn't come in here anxious, but you've made me very anxious, okay? Thank you for that. Here's a, here's a better question, though, and this is the follow-up question. When you get fearful, when you get anxious, what do you do? When you get stirred up, or plugged into those fears, those things that make you anxiety, that create anxiety, what do you do? To whom or to what do you turn? Now, as, as Christians, as God's people worshiping here at Four Oaks, we profess that there is indeed only one, one Savior, Jesus Christ, who helps us in our fears but we would say that, that, that Jesus gives us a variety of ways, a, a, a variety of means of graces for, for dealing with those things that really disturb our soul, that keep us up late at night. His good gifts, his grace. We can point to our marriages or our friendships. Um, we around here at Four Oaks like medicine. We like our doctors, do we not? We, we like our law enforcement officers. When you came in, you should have seen a um, somebody in, in, the, in the Leon County Sheriff's deputy uniform and 
be on the way out today, say thank you for, for being here. So these are all good gifts. These, these are all things that, that we believe God has given us, that Jesus has, has given us to help protect us, to, to deal with our fears. And those are good things. You need to hear me say that. Those are really good things. However, the temptation we have as fallen human beings is to take these things that God has said are good gifts and we try to make them our little saviors. We try to invest into them a hope that they will be impossible to deliver. It's very possible for us to to look at these good gifts and to say, these are the things, in fact, that will rescue me, that will keep me. And the Bible has a word for that. It's called idolatry. See, idolatry is when we take the good gifts of God and we make them the most important things. And in the process, they then become an enslaving thing, a bad, a bad thing, because idols never deliver. Let me, let me, give, you, let me give you a cultural example. Because we are a culture, I think you would agree, that is pretty fixated on the human body. That's pretty fixated on health and longevity and being concerned about what we put into our bodies or what we don't put into our bodies. And let me just say that the Bible is pro-body. It is pro-body. It says that we are made in the image of God, that one day when we die, we will get a new body Thank goodness for some of us, right, in heaven. We're not taking this bag of bones with us. We're getting a whole new set of flesh and bones. And and the scriptures have all sorts of of things to say about how we treat this body in this life. The scriptures tell us things like don't, don't be gluttonous. Don't worship food. The scriptures tell us that physical training has some value. It does have some value. Paul reminds us that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And that as such, we are to be good stewards of our bodies, how we, how we treat our bodies. God has given us common grace. God has given us wisdom, which means that, that part of our stewardship of our bodies is that we are free to, to, before the Lord to organize our life in particular ways, to eat it this way and not that way, to, to, to discern what foods for us are, are we could eat in good conscience what foods or drinks that we can't. We, God gives us vitamins and nutrition and supplement. And let me, I'm saying all this to say those are all really, really good things. They're part of God's grace to us. Now, what do you think the next word is that I'm going to say? Not but, however. Okay, however. Okay. If you believe that those things will give you decisive control of your health... If you believe that they are going to be an insurance policy against sickness and disease and dying and physical suffering, when you get that troubling report from the doctor, when you get that that tragic news, that terrible diagnosis, you'll be crushed. You'll be disappointed. You'll You'll be disillusioned. And you might even be angry with God. God, I've been eating a certain way, and I've been taking my pills, and I've been doing everything right, yet you failed me. To which we would say, no, no, God has not failed you. Your idols have failed you. You've asked them to do something for you that they were never designed to do. And the the problem is not with those things. Those are all good and gracious gifts that God gives us in the context. The problem is with our hearts. 
The problem, and this is, this is always true in idolatry, when we, when we plumb down to the depths of our souls, what we find is that at the bottom of our idolatries is a fear. There's a fear of something. There's a fear that, that drives our behavior. There's a fear that, of whatever it happens to be, whether it's a fear of safety or a fear for our health or a fear for our kids, that, that, that causes us to take the good things of God and make them ultimate. But the problem is they always disappoint. But nonetheless, we fear as believers. I don't know what fears that you came in here with today, but you need to know that David had those same kind of fears. We see that in Psalm 27. And and David is going to show us the way forward, that the way to deal with our fears is not by grabbing hold of idols, and it's not even by being in denial. It's simply putting our fears into the proper context. So we're going to be in Psalm 27. We're going to read the the whole chapter here. It's a very familiar psalm if you've been a Christian for any length of time. You've probably sung songs about it and done Bible studies about it and readings, and it's a great psalm. Uh, I encourage you to commit it to, to memory. I've started this week to try to commit this to memory. My brain doesn't work like it used to. Okay? It's still formidable, but it's not, not, not quite what it once was. So I'm having a little harder time with this. What a great psalm. Psalm 27. Let's listen. The Lord is my light. In my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an enemy encamp, an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy, I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. And my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Let's pray. Father, um, our fears are big. And just like David, our fears are real. And Father, we know though that ultimately, wherever we turn, 
to find deliverance from those things. That, that is where our hope is. That's where our security is. And Lord, I'm praying that for each and every one of us as we walk out of here today, we will have a renewed sense of what it means to hope in you. We will have a renewed sense and a vision for what it means to wait for you. Lord, this is an amazing psalm. Lord, let not one word of this precious passage fall to the ground. But Lord, hold it up. Apply it to our hearts and our lives. Lord, we're asking you to do this through the power of your spirit. Amen. Two questions, two questions only to guide us through this text. And here they are. Number one, what do you fear? And number two, what do you want? Now, the first question is important because it can help us understand a little better what it is that we do, how we organize our lives, and what ways do we live our lives. How, how, how does fear sort of seep its way down into the fabric of our lives? So what is it that we fear? But it's the second question that I think is the most important one. And the second question helps us to understand why it is that we do what we do. See, that's, that's an even better question because when we understand that, we can better understand what David is pointing us towards here. So let's start with the first question. What do you fear? Now, we're not totally sure of the context here with, with David in Psalm 27, but it seems, on the surface at least, that it, that it appears that this is happening at the beginning of David's reign in Israel as king. Remember that, that David was preceded by Saul, and Saul was a bad king, okay? He didn't trust in the Lord. He didn't walk with the Lord. And, David said, and God said, I'm removing you, Saul, and I'm replacing you with David. And David had been anointed by Samuel to be the king. And, you know, the good thing about Saul is that he went right along with this, right? That's awesome. I'm going to abdicate my throne. That is going to be wonderful. I'm like King Edward. No, 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 no. Okay? That's, that's not what happened. Saul says, I'm not taking this lion down. Off with your head, David. And for the next several years, David is a king in exile. He is on the run. He has this little band of, of, of ragtag men with him that, that are hiding out with him. And they're in the caves and the wilderness. And, and he is on the run. And there is this, this pivotal point where David's on the run and there is this Edomite named Doag who, who knows who David is. And he, he happens to find out where David is staying. And he goes and tells Saul. And Saul comes and in the process of trying to kill David, kills 85 priests who were there protecting David. These, these were evil dudes. Okay? These were real fears. These are not what I call first world problems. You know what first world problems are? I can't stream Netflix as fast as I want on Friday night. That's a first world problem, okay? Some of you kids think you're in the throes of a crisis because you have an iPhone 6, and my gosh, that just will not do, right? We've got to prepare for iPhone 8 and forget the iPhone 7 stuff. And no, 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 okay. no, 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 no. Guys, this is not theoretical, David's not up in the palace pinning these, these, these mystery novels of intrigue, okay, for another generation. These are real fears. There's, there's, first of all, there's physical fears. Look at verse 2. David tells us that these evildoers are, are waiting to assail him to eat up his flesh. And we're like, well, that's kind of hyperbole, right? 
Not really. The, the language that David uses here is, is the same language that, that the Bible often uses to talk about a, a lion or a predator waiting in secret to pounce on its prey and to devour, to, to tear its victim from limb to limb. And guys, make no mistake, that's exactly what Saul wanted to do. Saul did not want to entreat with David and say, let's, let's take a conflict resolution class and see if we can work through this whole thing. No, 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 no. He wanted to get David, capture him, torture him, and then put his head on a pike. That's what's facing David. Look at verse 3. It says, this army, this enemy, is encamped against him. Now, now it's one thing to be in the middle of a war. But you know what sometimes is often even more difficult than the war itself? It's the anticipation of it. Okay, if, you think about, if you think about public speaking, and some of you are, are, are deathly terrified of public speaking, which is why we're going to call you up one by one today to testify up here, okay? But, but, but honestly, what's, what's worse, the actual speaking or the anticipation of it? dreaming about it the night before and dreading it and your hands getting sweaty and 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 when you get up there it's like it's hard but but it's 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 the dread of the thing see this is what now Spurgeon if you're going to if you're going to study the psalm Spurgeon is where you go his treasury for David which we have available out on the bookshelf for the low low price of something anyway you can find it out there here's what Spurgeon says about this about David he says doubtless the shadow of anticipated trouble is to timorous minds. Do we have that slide? Doubtless the shadow of anticipated trouble is to timorous minds a more prolific source of sorrow than the trouble itself. What does that mean? You get anxiety about the anxiety. It's like you go to bed one night or try to go to bed and you're anxious about something, you're stirred up about something and you can't sleep. So the next day, the next night rolls around and, and you've got a double problem, right? Because not only are you anxious about the thing you were anxious about, but now what are you anxious about? Being anxious about the thing you were anxious about, right? It's anxiety on top of anxiety. And this is clearly David. He was not sleeping well. He was not getting a good night's rest. He was living in physical fear. But he was also living with this prospect of personal fear. Look at verse 10. It says, for my father and mother have forsaken me. Now, that doesn't mean probably that his father and mother literally turned him out of the house. What it means, though, is that it was no longer tenable for him to live with them. Remember, David was a young boy. David, at this point, was still a young man. He had been tending sheep, but he had driven, been driven from his home. Okay, from his family and displaced for them. Now, a lot of you know this by experience, and, and, and the Feldmans had, had this experience. They suffered a fire recently and being put out of their home for a season. And, and, and you know how hard that is to be dislocated. You, you, you just feel discombobulated, and I'm living out of my car. I hope the Feldmans are not living out of their car. But anyway, they were living out of our car. We're living wherever. Now, that, that's one thing, and that's David. But it's quite another knowing you can't go back because of some relational strife. See, see, we've got to remember something. We know on this end, like, who was in the right, that David was God's anointed. But nobody else knew that. 
See, Paul, see Saul, and look down at verse 12. Saul had been, had been spreading lies. It says false witnesses. See, Saul had been telling everybody, look at this usurper. This David, this shepherd boy. He wants my title. He wants my position. So off with his head. Don't give him any hospitality. Don't give him any quarter. See, it's, it's, it's one thing to, 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 to be ostracized or set aside or outcast and know that you've done something to deserve it, right? <laughs> you know, it's one thing to be at the office and, and, and know that, that you're sort of on the outs at the office because you've been a bad employee. But it's quite another to know that somebody's been spreading lies about you and slander and you were on the outs due to no thing or responsibility of your own. That's hard, isn't it? That's hard being falsely accused and not being able to correct the record. See, that was, that was all part of the cauldron of fear that David is experiencing here. There's a, there's a pastor um, who's, who's, who's about my age that a number of us on the team have come to, to really appreciate through his preaching and writing. It's a, it's, a, it's a pastor named Zach Eswine. He's written a book called The Imperfect Pastor, which seems to be the theme of my life. Anyway, it's a great book. Okay? But in this, Zach talks about the time. See, Zach was previously married, and he was a seminary professor, and he was out one day um, speaking or doing something, and he got a call from his wife, and he heard her say, I'm done. I'm leaving. I'm, I'm, I'm gone. I'm out of here. I'm, I'm leaving you and the three kids. When I say leave, I mean literally leaving. But due to sort of quirk of fate or sovereignty of God, he, he was in a contractual arrangement with his seminary, and there were certain employment and legal parameters about all of this which precluded him from talking about what had happened. And only a very few people on the inside, and there was legal issues involved, I believe, only a very few people knew the total truth, and he had to sort of suffer in silence. He had to, have, he had to be witness to Christians, even, even people close to him, questioning what is going on, and why are you doing this, Zach, and why aren't you fixing this situation? And all the while knowing, not that it's not his fault, we all have fault in these things, but... but but this is not of my doing. He was suffering in silence. So yes, David knew a thing or two about fear because he had seen a thing or two. That's the farmer's commercial. Remember that one? Dump it up, 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 up. Okay, anyway, so, so we have something to learn from David about our fears. And before we go to the next point, let me just say a couple of things about this. See, David gets very specific about his fears. Okay, this is not just a, I'm anxious, okay? I'm, I'm generally anxious or I'm generally worried. David gets right down to it. He names these specific things. And I think he does this for a few reasons. You see, when, when you begin to identify your fears, when you begin to identify your anxieties, whether it's through prayer, whether it's through writing it in your journal or telling your spouse or telling an accountability partner, the fear begins to lose some of its power. Okay, now, now, a lot of you know I'm, 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 I'm fantasy sci-fi nerd. 
And so I'm going to draw from the wonderful world of Harry Potter in this one. But believe me, it's, it's going to be worth it if, if you would stay with me just for a second. See, in the Harry Potter novels, Voldemort is the arch-evil wizard. And he's so evil, he's so terrible, he's done so many awful things that no wizard will utter his name. What, 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 what do they refer to him as? He who must not be named. Okay, I know a lot of you knew that, and you just aren't letting on right now, but I know it's true. He who must not be named. Except one person, Dumbledore, doesn't, doesn't do that. Dumbledore actually calls him Tom. You see, because Voldemort used to be a little boy, and Dumbledore was his professor, was his teacher. And, and what's, what's, it's, it's hilarious. It's Rowling's way of, of, as Voldemort is going through the wizarding world and doing terrible things and curses and killing people, here you have Dumbledore referring to him as Tom, little Tom. And it just sort of dispels this notion of, 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 evil and darkness that sort of surrounds this thing that must not be said. Guys, there's a lot of truth to that for us as believers, that when we can confess specifically, call out to the Lord specifically, write in our journal specifically, here is what I'm fearful of, God. I'm fearful of, of this disease. I, I'm, I'm, fearful, I'm fearful for my child. I'm, I'm fear, it, what, fill in the blank whatever that is for you. And let me tell you, when we do that, it gives us the opportunity to bring God's word and truth in a very specific way applied very personally to our hearts. You see, as long as our fears and anxieties become, are just sort of nebulous and kind of out there and, and nondescript, we miss the opportunity to bring those before the Lord and to say, God, really, as David does here, really speak into these things. God, your word is really powerful. Your spirit is really powerful to transform my heart and my perspective. That's what David does. It's what I encourage us to do. Identify what we fear. And that's important to get to the second question. To identify what we want. And, and, and I say that this is the most important question because if fear is sort of an indicator of something going on in our hearts, this question, what it is do you want to see happen to that fear? What do you want to see God do? How do you want to see God fix this thing? That can communicate something about how you see God in relationship to you. Let's go back to the text for a second. David prays for a lot of things in this psalm. Let me say that right up front. David prays for a lot of things. He prays that God will fix this. Okay, look at verse 12. He says, give me not to the will of my adversaries. What does that mean in English? It is in English, but what does it mean? I don't want to die. God, I don't want to die. David's just really honest about that. Verse 11, lead me on a level path. I mean, like literally and figuratively. Dude was living in the mountains. He's like, I want to get back to the valley, you know, where the people are and the food is and the water is. He, he implores God in verse 9 not to cast him off. Verse 7, look there. He says, hear, O Lord, be gracious to me and answer me. 
Guys, there is nothing wrong with praying that God will show up and fix whatever it is that is making you fearful and anxious today. In fact, I beg you, I implore you, pray those things. Jesus wants us to pray those things. That's what he teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount. We, we, we don't have this general idea of, well, Jesus is enough for you, and that's, that's all you should pray for. Now, that is the punchline, okay? But, but we're working our way that way. But that's not all we pray. We don't have this false choice of either Jesus be enough for me or Jesus come please fix these things in my life. It's a both and. And David shows us that. So whatever fear you brought in here today, God heal my marriage. God remove that sin. God make that test come back negative. You need to hear me loud and clear for folks. Pray those things. Those are good things. Your heavenly father wants to hear them from you. Yet, yet, what is the most important thing you can pray for? That's the question. What's the primary thing? What's the foundational thing? What what is the one prayer that you and I must pray in order to order correctly all those other prayers? You see, without the prayer that we're going to look at here in verse 4, then all those other things, they can become idolatry. And they, come in, they could engender bitterness to God because, God, I prayed and prayed and prayed about these things, but you haven't answered me. David points us to the one thing, meaning the primary thing, the foundational thing. Anytime the Scripture tells us one thing to do, we really want to pay attention. Look at verse 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. What in the world is David talking about? Because I think there's, there's two levels here. On one level, remember, this is very real, where David is basically saying, since I've been on the run living in a cave, I have not been able to go to church. Okay, that is real. Okay, remember, there was no temple. The Ark of God, the Holy of Holies, it existed in a tent in Shiloh. And so people in Israel and the priests, in order to offer sacrifices and their worship, would come together. That's where they would go. David can't be there. David is cut off from God's people. David can't offer sacrifices. David David can't, can't worship God in the way that he would be accustomed to. And so he is certainly praying that God would restore him to that. Let it be so for us, right? Let it be so for us. But for David, being in God's house, with God's people, on God's day, is a means to something even greater, just as it is for us. It's a means to something even more compelling. It is a means to the one thing that he asked God for, that we must ask God for, that we will dwell in the house of the Lord. And what does David mean by that? I think he, in verses 8 and 9 and 13, he explains a little bit what this means. Okay? He says, look look in verse 8. He says, seek my face. He says, Lord, I seek your face. Verse 9, I want to see your face. Hide not your face. Verse 13, I want to look upon the Lord. Now, when we think about all that, that... It's a little confusing because 
we know that the catechism tells us that God is a spirit and has not a body like men. What does this mean, God, look at your face? What does that mean, God, don't hide your face? That, what, what is this about? You know, parents, when you sit down to discipline your children, which I hope you do early and often, okay, is in, in, and you sit them down and you want to talk to them, but they're looking at the floor, what's the first thing you do or should do as a parent? Look up, right? Get their little chin right in your fingers. Boop, 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 boop. Okay, right, right, look, look up here. Okay. Now, why do you do that as a parent? Because it's only by looking at someone, looking them in the eye, seeing their facial expressions, seeing the frown or the smile or whatever, that you really kind of get to know what's going on. So, 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 so husbands, when, when you come in and your wife asks you how your day was, and you start to tell her the whole time looking at her feet, okay? Wives, what, what should you do? Get out of there, right? Okay, no, it's like, no, no, no wait, wait a minute. Hello, we're, 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 we're communing, we're relating here. Research shows this, okay, that, that when people are genuinely interested in one another, they look at each other in the eyes, not the feet or over here or, or over there. See, this is David's way of saying that the one thing, Lord, I need and for folks, the one thing you need is I need you. I need to know you. I need to be in your presence. I need to be in your fellowship. I need to, to gaze or meditate or think about who you are. I need to study you. I, I, I need to... I need, I need uninterrupted communion here. See, I think that's what, that's what David is saying. David wants to know God. He says, and this is, I mean, this, this is an astounding thing. Folks, do you really believe that? That that is the one thing that you need? Do, do you really believe that that is, that is the one foundational thing in your heart and your soul? It is what your soul most longs for. We have to ask Paul, and it sounds so good, but, but, but how, how can I trust that? How can I know that? That, that, is, that is so hard. Why does David direct us to God and God alone? Why, why does David get, record this prayer for us? Oh, I think, and, here, and here's a reason why I think. You see, David can have everything in the world his throne, which he gets. He can have his wife, which he gets. He can have his kids, which he can get. He can have his people, which he gets. He can have loyalty from his subjects, which he gets. But you know what? In relationship to every one of those, he loses them all. He's on the run from his son Absalom as he's near his own deathbed. His people turn against him. He, he's threat of losing his 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 throne, people are no longer loyal. But he says, the one thing I need is God because he will never leave me or forsake me. This is why David is constantly saying things, writing things like, don't abandon, don't abandon me, Lord. I know you won't abandon me to Sheol, which is kind of like the metaphor for the land of the dead. God, I, I, I love all these things in my life, but I know when it comes my time to go, there's only one person that can go with me, 
and that is you. That's why David tells us the one thing. You see, verse 12, this is, I think, or verse 13, it's pretty profound. He says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Now, what is he talking about there? Certainly, he's saying, God, I want you to rescue me from physical danger. Certainly. Because David doesn't know what's going to happen. David doesn't know. David, da- David's been anointed king. For all he knows, he's going to spend the rest of his life in a cave. He's going to die in obscurity in some wilderness piece of sand way out there. But he says, you know what? It's okay. Because I know God is going with me. Not just in this life, but into the next. He is the only one that can escort me into the land of the living. What is it that you fear? You know, I had the opportunity this week to think a lot about this in relationship to one of my deepest fears. And I'm kind of an anxious guy, so I've got several fears. I'll just talk about one of them this morning, okay? This is the, this is the fear of loss, and L-O-S-S. And by loss, I mean the loss of, of friendships or the loss of youth or the loss of family, or I'm kind of a nostalgic guy, the loss of of what once was. This is why I would, do, I would be terrible on Facebook, and I don't get on it. Susan always lets me know what's going on. This college friend, this high school friend, I would just get totally sucked into it because I would, I would be captivated by what once was. And how do we preserve what once was? And so we were, we, were, we were in Chattanooga this past week, and my dad, who's 76, took us on a tour of, of Signal Mountain you know, to see where he lived and where he went to school and where he played and all that. And, and I, I found it um, fascinating, enthralling. Our kids got nauseous in the back seat. Okay, but anyway, he took us to a place called Mabbit Springs. It's kind of a public trail there. And, but many moons ago, before it was developed, he lived right next door to Mabbit Springs on a private pre- piece of property. And he would go along the trail and he would show us, this is where we built the treehouse and this is where we swam and this is where we crawled under the rock. And, and I'm thinking this should be like a really happy moment, like granddad passing on memories to his, kid, his grandkids, right? But I got sad. I was sad, I was sad pastor. And I was like, what, what, is, what, what is going on, God? Why, why am I so sad right now? Because it was about a sense of loss. It was this idea of this isn't going to last forever. My dad's not going to always be with us. You know, this, is, this, this life is sort of fading away. And as, I, and as I started to reflect upon that, let me just say this. A fear of loss is natural. It's normal. It's part of the human experience. It's what we all deal with. But boy, it can become a real idol. Because when, when we begin to organize our lives to avoid loss, I don't want to lose relationships. I'm not going to tell the truth. I'm not going to take risks. I, I want to avoid loss in my life. And so I want to preserve the man I once was, which means cashing in one marriage for a much younger version. See, see, loss can become, or whatever your fear is, can become a, 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 an entrenched sort of idol that will make you walk away from the faith, that will make you shipwreck everything that God has given you because you've taken a good thing. And you've made it the ultimate thing. What is it that you fear? David says, 
And here's my prayer for us as we close this morning for Oaks. My prayer for you, my prayer for me, is that we will see that we only need him. And, and the reason that we only need him is because of what happens from Psalm 27. See, when David's writing, he's, he knows he's pointing forward to a day when there'll be someone in the line of David, and that was Jesus Christ, who took on everything this psalm embodied. I want you to think about this. Jesus Christ was betrayed by false witnesses and people who slandered him. Jesus Christ was given up to his adversaries and foes who literally tore him bone from bone, flesh from flesh. Jesus Christ went into the dark place, separated from God. God's wrath poured out on him. What did Jesus Christ say? My God, my God, what? Why have you forsaken me? Jesus went to the land of Sheol. Jesus, no one went with him, but he did it for you. And he did it for me. And because of that, we can have confidence. We can have hope. We can trust that he will be enough for us. And we can do what verse 14 says. Look at verse 14. Four oaks, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. You know, waiting just simply means we don't reach for our idols, but we pray. We hope. We obey. We submit. And we trust for a lifetime. This never ends. Knowing that God will journey with us to the land of the living. Where's your hope today? Call us to place our hope in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.